Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. The 60-day legislative session hits the halfway mark this week, and already Governor Ron DeSantis has signed several sweeping pieces of legislation into law. Bills signed into law or making their way through the legislature include big changes to tort reform, concealed weapons permits, abortion limits, education and housing. We'll check in with two journalists who are paying close attention to the session, Lawrence Maurer and John Kennedy. I talked with Maurer about a new law that's designed to pump millions of dollars into affordable housing and about who really stands to benefit from tort reforms. First though, John Kennedy explains the controversy around changes to Florida's gun laws. On Monday, DeSantis signed a bill that allows gun owners to carry their weapons concealed without a permit. We also talk about school voucher expansion and new restrictions on abortions. I talked with Kennedy by Zoom on Friday, before the Senate voted Monday to approve a six-week ban on abortions. State Democratic Party leader Nikki Freed and Senate Minority Leader Lauren Book were among those arrested at a protest in Tallahassee. Well, John Kennedy is the Florida State Capitol reporter for Gannett Newspapers and USA Today. John, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Let's talk first about the concealed carry bill. Just remind us what this bill does and what the limits are. Well, this bill will allow people to uh, purchase a weapon. The current laws are still in existence for for obtaining a weapon. But what it does is um, it means that you don't have to get a concealed weapons permit from the state to carry a firearm now. So it really opens that door. It removes any kind of paperwork challenge that people had to get a weapon. So guns are going to be more easily accessible in the state of Florida going forward. What are lawmakers in favor of the bill saying about it? A lot of, uh, you know, Second Amendment rights eliminating the, uh, they like to refer to it as the permission slip from state government to get a weapon, to get what they view as, you know, I mean, obviously it's a, uh, it's a constitutional right in their view to be able to access a, a firearm. So the idea of having a concealed weapons permit from the state that still rankles those real Second Amendment advocates the wrong way. It, it makes them think that uh, the state is uh, too deeply involved in regulating uh, firearms uh, access. Now, there has been a, a, a bit of an internal struggle within that Second Amendment community, because uh, while the Republican-led legislature in Florida is going ahead with the idea of you don't need a concealed weapons permit now, many people on the Second Amendment uh, community want open carry to be allowed, too, which is not allowed in Florida. The idea that you could walk around the street with your sidearm strapped and, and everybody could see it. This legislation does not do that. And there are many who think it's kind of weak tea, you know, that they're saying they should have gone for the whole uh, open carry. But um, there's political dynamic at play. The Florida Sheriff's Association has signed off on the uh, permitless carry, but they have not signed off on the open carry. And uh, that seems to be a, a factor that law enforcement is behind permitless carry, but not behind open carry. What about the objections then? What's been the reaction from folks, uh, you know, after this bill was sent to DeSantis and I guess in the debate leading up to it uh, being sent through to the governor? 
as you can imagine, a, a lot of it centered on the idea that Florida was just making guns too available. And, uh, you know, so much of uh, crime in this state and every state is often uh, linked to the, the presence of firearms. And uh, this is something that potentially can uh, uh, allow more people to get guns and more untrained people to have guns, uh, seems to be the idea. There is a certain amount uh, in the con- current concealed weapons permit, some amount of uh, training, minimal, but still some kind of uh, competency level that must be shown to uh, get a concealed weapons permit. And this now, this new law would eliminate that. So a lot of people are seeing it just as something that you're going to have more people packing firearms and they don't know how to use them. Also, of course, the the optics of this legislation passing out of the legislature, you know, just days after this, the latest of mass shootings at a school in Nashville, Tennessee, and the proliferation of of weapons uh, in the state. That's really the argument made by the opponents, but it went nowhere. Let's pivot then and talk about the abortion ban, a six-week abortion ban. Talk us through the specifics of this. What's going on here? This is uh, something where just last year, the legislature uh, reduced the time permit for um, abortions to uh, no more than at the 15-week of pregnancy mark. After that, most abortions would be outlawed in the state of Florida at 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, this legislation would set it at six weeks. The 15-week ban was created last year before the United States Supreme Court issued its June ruling that overturned Roe versus Wade and sent abortion standards back to states to decide. So um, the 15-week law last year was largely created to match the Mississippi law that the United States Supreme Court reviewed last year and upheld. So the legislature last year was kind of anticipating a positive ruling on that 15-week standard, but the United States Supreme Court went even further and sent it back to the states to regulate you know, all abortion. So Florida abortion opponents right now view the state as sort of you know behind what it could do. So that's where this six-week law has been approved. Uh, one thing that's uh, contingent on it, the 15-week law is being challenged before the state Supreme Court. And the six-week law will take effect if and when the uh, state Supreme Court upholds the 15-week law. A lot of the 15-week laws of the future, and similarly the six-week law, is hinged on that state Supreme Court revisiting the state's right to privacy. Florida has a very uh, broad and strict constitutional right to privacy that in 1989 was uh, ruled as extending to abortion rights. That has been a barrier for many years now to the state enacting stricter abortion laws. They have enacted some abortion laws in the uh, interim, but they haven't done much with those uh, the, the time period for when an abortion could be uh, uh, taken place. So uh, the six week, it is widely anticipated that the state Supreme Court probably will revisit the right to privacy and say it does not apply to abortion, that it was misinterpreted in 1989. That is the uh, expectation by many Republican legislators. Remember, this state Supreme Court now, it's a seven-member Supreme Court. Four of the members have been appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis. So um, it is a conservative court. Right. Just to be clear, though, this is assuming that 
this six week ban makes its way through both chambers of the you know Florida legislature right that hasn't quite happened yet but assuming that does then it moves on to the next step that's true yeah and and of course you know another element in this too is uh Governor Ron DeSantis uh, is expected to sign it. He has indicated that he would sign it. But, you know, he he is a uh, potential Republican presidential candidate. And abortion rights across this nation remain supported by polls I've seen show about at least half of Americans support abortion rights and uh, support leaving abortion alone, basically. So uh, it, it has a political shading as well. For sure. I mean, and he has, Governor DeSantis has been fairly circumspect in his public pronouncements about abortion rights. He's, he's managed to tread a fairly fine line between saying he's pro-life, but not really being specific about what bills he would or wouldn't support. But have you seen that change as the session has gotten underway and as that as the governor continues to put all the pieces in place for what appears to be a presidential bid. Yeah, it's uh, he, he remains pretty circumspect on abortion. He he hasn't been questioned too much about it lately, I'd say, in his various appearances. Uh, other topics have, have dominated. But, you know, he, he kind of casts it, as, as you suggest, uh, kind of very broadly and like he's very pro-life, you know, and w- would support more pro-life limits. Now, you know, is the six-week limit the one that he will go along with? Because, I mean, one thing is is that a vast majority of abortions in Florida take place in the first trimester, the first 12 weeks. So here, this law would cut that 12-week mark down by half. And as as far as the folks who are in favor of women's right to choose uh, whether or not to have an abortion, what have we heard from them? And especially in public comment as as these uh, bills are being debated. The Democrats uh, in the Senate uh, have tried uh, more than a dozen amendments to the bill to try to derail it pretty much in one way or another. Uh, among the things that were brought up is uh, is religious beliefs that that you know some religious communities really don't see a fetus as having a separate life from the life of a of a woman. That's that's one argument. There's been uh, arguments made about there's nothing in here that has any uh, stricter standards for for men who are fathers of children that women are carrying. Then a whole host of uh, social service and um, and healthcare access uh, questions have been raised by the opponents. Really, you know, it's it's uh, bodily autonomy is one of the persistent arguments that this is really the state ordering women to um, to face a stricter decision about their own bodies. And uh, some say that the six weeks is uh, really a very difficult standard to meet because many women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks, and then after that. There's going to be no choice in this state going forward. Education has been very contentious in Florida in the last couple of years. A massive school voucher expansion is now law. What does that mean for parents who want to send their children to a private school on the public dime? And what are opponents warning about the consequences of this change to the law? Well, it really is quite a shift. I mean, the way uh, this voucher law now effectively eliminates any kind of financial family income requirements to get state money to go to private school. So effectively, it's it's seen as something that every parent that has a child in private school or is anticipating going to private school, you might as well take what will be about $8,500 from the state. And uh, that'll be at least a down payment on your private school education. That is one of the arguments that, that this is really just a state government giveaway 
to families of, uh, you know, substantial means already. For others, uh, you know, the expansion of vouchers, it also raises the questions that we've often seen about the whole voucher issue in Florida, that it's going to uh, spark the creation of voucher schools where limited regulation by the state, uh, their standards, they, they don't, it's fairly loose as to what educational quality they may be. So there's that concern too. And it's seen as something where it has the risk of resegregation in Florida is high under this too, because again, some of these voucher schools will get perhaps lower income minority students exclusively, whereas the more conventional private schools and parochial schools that uh, that we know, the academies that are around the state, they're still going to get predominantly white parents, maybe of fairly good financial means. And those parents are going to be getting a supplement now from the state of what amounts to this per pupil spending in the state is about $8,500. So uh, they would be eligible for that. So yeah, it's a real, it's creating two two systems, public and private, all funded by public dollars, taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And I think it's important to note too, that a lot of the rules that apply to public schools don't apply necessarily to private schools, even when they are accepting students using these vouchers, right? For example, students with special needs, a a private school may not necessarily have to accept that student, whereas a public school would. So there is, to your point, a bit of stratification possible here and not necessarily to the benefit of, of students or families. And where, you know, it, it will move some dollars away from public schools because in Florida, the dollars follow the child, the F- FTEs. If, if some districts lose FTEs to private schools, that means that that district is going to get less money. They're going to have, le- they're going to have fewer children, but they're also going to have a significantly less amount of money. What, John Kennedy, do you think is in store for the back half of the session? So much has been dealt with already. It's been a whirlwind session. We're only halfway through it. What are you looking at for the next few weeks? There's still a a lot of uh, finishing up on some of these big bills that have to be done. And there, of course, is a budget. State budget is the only bill by law that the legislature has to pass. And the two sides each have separate but similar $113 $113 billion uh, spending plans for the state for next year. That's going to take a lot of time. It always does just to uh, complete a budget. The uh, abortion legislation will have to be finalized um, and, and is expected to be finalized in, in coming weeks. There will be an immigration bill that the governor called for. And so far, it has been moving kind of slowly in the House and Senate. There's been questions about how far it should go. The governor wants to prohibit undocumented students in the state from getting in-state tuition. That was something that the legislature, the Republican-led legislature, just somewhat ironically, nine years ago, okayed in a very emotional moment. They extended in-state tuition to undocumented students. And that was done during an election year in 2014. Now, uh, the latest election, this being the presidential election for potentially Governor DeSantis, has prompted the, the governor to be clamoring for basically a redo of that law to block these students from getting in-state tuition. But you're right, they are moving along at a very brisk pace. Well, John Kennedy, Florida State Capitol reporter for Gannett Newspapers and USA Today, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's great being here. 
You're listening to Florida Matters. Still to come, journalist Lawrence Maurer talks about a huge funding boost for affordable housing and why tort reform has triggered a surge in civil cases. That's when we return. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. At the midpoint of this legislative session, we're checking in with reporters covering some of the biggest pieces of legislation. Among the bills already signed into law by Governor DeSantis, tort reform and affordable housing. To get a sense of how these law changes will affect Floridians, I talked with Lawrence Maurer. Lawrence Maurer is a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times, Miami Herald, Tallahassee Bureau. Thanks so much for joining us, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. Let's start with affordable housing and the bill that was just passed. It's a big one. What do affordable housing advocates like about it? Well, this is really the biggest housing bill in decades uh, for the legislature. You know, for years, they cut back funding for affordable housing. There's actually tax revenue that's specifically supposed to be set aside for the creation of affordable housing. And for years, the legislature has just swept it, basically taken that money, spent it on other things. And what this legislation does is put in a record amount of money for affordable housing, $700 million. It basically boosts the amount of money for the next decade for affordable housing and does all kinds of other things, basically, that are designed to spur more development. Mm -hmm. What about criticisms leveled at this bill? I mean, for a start, it's just been signed, so probably a little bit of wait and see, but is it going to make housing more affordable in the end? Well, I think the answer is probably yes in the long run. Um, but there have been some critics of this. This is basically a market solution to this issue. They they want to spur more development. So a lot of these things are like t- they offer tax breaks for apartments that basically set aside units for affordable housing. That's really the big thing. The critics, though, have have kind of focused on some of the preemption. So one of the problems with affordable housing projects is nimbyism, basically. People saying, you know, there will be a project proposed, and this is a real thing that just happened in in Seminole last year. There was a, a project proposed for disabled veterans and other people that was affordable housing. And the community came out and said, we don't want this. This is going to lead to more traffic, more crime. And so the uh, the city basically voted it down. Now, that did come back eventually, but what this bill does is basically take away that authority for a lot of communities. It basically eliminates some zoning restrictions in, in areas of town that are maybe zoned for commercial use. The bill says that it basically preempts that and says, you know, if somebody comes forward with an affordable housing project and zoning is the only obstacle to it, then those requirements are waived. Another thing it does that a lot of people are upset about is it does away with Florida community's ability to impose rent controls. Uh, This is something that's not really used in Florida. Florida does have a law that says communities can impose rent control for one year increments, and it has to be approved by voters. This is something that Orlando did last year, and they were immediately sued over it, and it's never taken effect. But what this law does is says, you know, it does away entirely with the rent control provision. So communities can't impose rent control. The other issue is that it doesn't do a whole lot in the short term for renters. Like if you're renting right now, there is a tax break for developers or owners of apartment complexes that says, basically, if you set aside a certain number of units, you can get a tax break. 
Well, it's kind of unclear like how many people will take them up on that. And that's something that will probably take a little while to take effect. And so that's been the other criticism. How does it fit into other bills that consolidate power in Tallahassee? Just thinking about that, removing local control and some aspects of home rule. Well, this has been a big trend up in Tallahassee. I mean, they, the, the Republicans have consolidated power up there, taken power away from local communities to make decisions on some zoning stuff, community planning, things like that. And this does fit into that. But, you know, on the whole, this is a, a legislation that is long time overdue. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to somebody who was around when when Florida first adopted its affordable major affordable housing policies decades ago. And, you know, he said two years ago, if the legislature had come up with a bill that had 700 million plus for affordable housing, most people would have gotten down on their knees to thank them, Hmm. you know, and now we've got a bill with more than that money and a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, you want to nitpick it. And that is really the truth here, which is that this is a, a big deal. This should solve or help alleviate the problems that we're seeing. It may take a few years for the benefits to be realized, but it's still way better than what the legislature has been doing, which is basically taking the money and spending on other on other things. Right. You've been covering the homeowners insurance crisis over the past few sessions, Lawrence. What has happened since the last special session on that? Not much. Uh, In the last special session, they basically made it much harder to sue insurance companies. And they also kind of set aside money for for insurance companies who need reinsurance ahead of storm season, which is basically insurance that insurance insurance companies buy uh, ahead of storm season. Uh, They didn't do a whole lot. Well, they haven't done anything really this session about that. Although there is a bill that's been announced a shell bill that we don't know what's in it, but it's supposedly going to be heard Wednesday morning that's supposed to hold insurance companies accountable. But uh, really, we haven't seen much except that the reforms that they have enacted so far haven't worked. Hmm. Uh, We saw two insurance companies had rate hearings last week, one of them for requesting a, uh, I think it was 48% across the board rate increase for their homeowners policies. Uh, They don't have many policies in Florida, but another company is requesting like a 70% overall rate increase. And of course, Citizens, the state-run insurance company, they're requesting, uh, I think they just approved a 14% across the board rate increase. And so basically what these companies are saying is that well, these reforms are were just enacted last year. It hasn't had enough time to take effect, and it hasn't really touched our modeling, essentially. And so, yeah, we're still going to be facing rate increases probably for the next year at least. Right. Now, there is a new law designed to crack down on lawsuits. It's caused a bottleneck of cases, which is a bit ironic. But talk to us about what the law aims to do and how it's going to affect Floridians long term. Yeah. So what the legislature did with property insurance, their solution to the property insurance crisis has basically been to make it much harder to sue property insurance companies, homeowners insurance companies. Mm -hmm. What the legislature passed already this session is a bill that extends those protections to all other forms of insurance, life insurance, health insurance, liability insurance. And what it does is it limits the statute of limitations from four years to two for liability suits. It basically eliminates what's known as the one-way attorney fee statute. This is a provision in the law that had been in in effect for more than 130 years. It's basically designed to give 
policyholders kind of a level playing field against their insurance company, you know, because insurance companies set the policies and you kind of have to agree to them or you don't get coverage. And so as a way to level the playing field, what the state did more than 100 years ago is say, if you are suing your insurance company over a policy dispute, essentially, and you win, basically the insurance company is found to have not honored their agreement with you, you get the attorney's fees paid for by the insurance company. Mm-hmm. What they're doing now is doing away with that. So if you sue uh, your insurance company, you have to pay the cost of your own attorney's fees. And insurance companies have been complaining about the number of lawsuits. There does seem to be a lot of lawsuits in the state, certainly for property insurance companies. But this has basically been the holy grail of insurance companies for a long time. They've long wanted these tort reforms. And some of these things have nothing to do at all with lowering policy premiums. For example, one of the changes that the legislature passed basically does away with bad faith lawsuits. This is primarily dealing with small businesses. You know, if you have a business, you have liability insurance, say one of your, a driver for one of your trucks hits and kills someone, usually your liability insurance is going to pay that out. And what this bill does is it basically gives insurance companies uh, a way to not be sued. So for example, you know, the driver of the truck hits and kills someone, the insurance company generally has an obligation to reach out to the victim's family or the victim and try to reach some kind of settlement. The, the company in that situation, they can't reach out and offer a settlement themselves. They have to go through their insurer. Mm-hmm. Well, if the insurance company does nothing, makes no offer, doesn't operate you know, in quote unquote good faith with the victim's family, the victim's family often sues the company, and then the company could be on the hook for the damages. And the company can then turn and sue their insurer saying, hey, you had an obligation to make a good faith effort to settle with this family. You never did. So I'm going to sue my insurer for bad faith. Mm -hmm. And these decisions, there's not very many of them each year. There's only a handful of lawyers who specialize in these kinds of bad faith lawsuits. And what this would do is basically give insurance companies a get out of jail free card. If they make a settlement offer within 90 days, they can't get sued. And this has caused a lot of consternation with Republicans who own small businesses. Even Trump called this overall bill a bailout for insurance companies. And, you know, this is basically something that that insurance companies have wanted for a very, very long time. The judgments are often millions of dollars. But the companies are forbidden from state law from passing those judgments, the cost of those judgments along to the policyholders. So this basically, these judgments eat into their profits. Right. And so this will have literally zero impact on anyone's premiums. And it's really just a way for uh, these insurance companies to avoid having to pay these things out of their profit. You know, it, it did trigger, you know, a wave of lawsuits. Which is what that bottleneck was, right? People trying to get their lawsuits in under the wire, so to speak. Exactly. These lawyers across the state filed like a record number of lawsuits in just three days all across the state. They've overwhelmed county clerks. Judges are trying to figure out how they can handle the surge in lawsuits because these lawyers across the state are like, look, they have cases waiting to uh, either file or just 
you know, negotiate a settlement out of court. You, that's probably what would happen with most of these. But I talked to attorney John Morgan, who's Morgan and Morgan billboards were all over the state. And he said, you know, we have an obligation to file these cases before this law takes effect, because this is going to cost our clients money. We have a, a duty to file these lawsuits because, you know, the policyholder is going to be the one paying their own, paying the attorney's fees now. Lawrence Mauer is a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times, Miami Herald, Tallahassee Bureau. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matthew. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.